0: Hello, y bienvenidos to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jaime Sanchez, Jr. Today, we're talking to Dr. Jennifer A. Jones about her brand new book, The Browning of the New South, published by the University of Chicago Press in May 2019. Jones is an assistant professor of sociology, as well as Latin American and Latino Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Jennifer Jones, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Jennifer, um, I wonder if you could start us off by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, So I am a native Chicagoan and uh, growing up in Chicago, I had sort of the unusual advantage of living all over the city. Anyone who knows anything about Chicago knows that it is A segregated place. It's kind of balkanized by neighborhood. And so if you have the opportunity to spend time in multiple neighborhoods, you get kind of a broad sense of a lot of issues around race and class and politics that uh, a lot of places are facing, but that you might not be aware of otherwise. And so That experience growing up for me, going to school on the south side, growing up on the north side, um, sort of sparked a broad interest in issues around race and political issues. Um, At the same time, growing up, I was really convinced that I wanted to Uh, work in public service and maybe be a diplomat. And so I was studying uh, Latin America pretty early on in high school and college, um, thinking that I would sort of spend time doing service work, maybe in Mexico or elsewhere in Central or South America. Um, While I was in college, though, 9-11 happened And that sort of gave me a jolt in thinking about how foreign policy actually works. Um, But it also was kind of informative in that it helped me think a little bit differently about the role of criticizing policy, creating policy, understanding the role of policy in shaping people's experiences. So once those two things sort of came together, I decided to sort of shift tact a little bit um, and decided to pursue graduate school. And so I had went into a program in sociology not having taken any sociology classes in college i was actually an international relations major with a specialty in cuba and latin america more broadly Um, and when i was in graduate school i started thinking much more carefully about sort of hemispheric relations diasporic relations um, and how the relationships between the us and latin america were shaping the kinds of racialized experiences people were having both here in the United States and abroad in Latin America. So um, I started out thinking domestically, actually, and doing a project on multiracials. And that was in part because I was interested in thinking about how people come to understand themselves as raced. So it wasn't so much about the Latin America stuff, but a way of, of thinking about Latin Americanization, if that makes sense. So a lot of our conversations about race in Latin America are about um, ideas of color or perhaps a spectrum Or racial democracy and all of these frameworks are similar in the way that we often try to frame multiracials in the united states so they're a way of thinking about oh if we just expand sort of the number of racial categories we have or we see people as sort of in between or we pay more attention to color than we do to category perhaps things like racial discrimination and inequality will shift Um, And so I was interested not just in how those categories worked, but also how people understood themselves. So I did this project, looking at multiracial organizations and how they came to understand their identity and what that meant, in terms of thinking about race more broadly. So that was interesting. It was a useful project. It gave me some great ideas and thinking about how race gets formed on the ground, how people engage in discourse to make sense of race, and how it's very much about that sort of experiential lived moment in which you encounter other people and you make sense of your identities through discrimination primarily, but also other kinds of bonding experiences. What do you have in common? What separates you? That kind of boundary maintenance work that happens on the ground. Um, And so that was super interesting, but I decided I didn't really want to do that for my dissertation. I wanted to think more about these same questions, but from a new lens. And so that's what brought me to the question of immigration. Um, So for my dissertation, I was thinking about how immigration was also doing the similar kind of work. And that started to bring back my expertise in Latin America to the conversation. So I was thinking about the ways in which Um, massive uh, waves of migrants, primarily from Latin America, but also from Asia, were changing cities, changing the way we're talking about race, changing the way we thought about those populations in particular. Um, And I knew about uh, a sort of increasing small group of migrants from Mexico, mostly from the coastal regions who are Afro-descendants. So I thought that I would uh, go ahead and pursue a a project that focused on them. As you know from the book, Jaime, that's not exactly what the book ended up being about, but that was kind of the catalyst for me thinking about um, the book itself. But in general, I consider myself to be kind of a race scholar. And so my background in sociology and my sort of combination of life experiences and academic experiences have come together around these questions about what race is. Um, how it works, how it's made, and the relationship between race and politics.
0: Outstanding. So, moving into the meat of the interview, how mm-hmm. did you come to write The Browning of the New South?
1: Sure. So as I mentioned, I was interested in this question about uh, Black Mexicans in particular, who I knew were migrating to the United States at numbers that they never had before, um, that they were a population that was kind of unknown in terms of how people understood Mexico in the US, but also in Mexico itself. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do some background research and try to understand what it means to have a population of sort of Afrodescendant, dark-skinned Mexicans in a place where you also have sort of mestizo, light-skinned Mexicans, and then other racial groups. Um, so I knew that these Mexicans were originally settling in California, but had started moving in large numbers to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So I thought I would spend a few months in Mexico trying to figure out how they understood their racial identities and what information they brought with them to the U.S. and then do some uh, time in North Carolina to understand how that was shifting race relations on the ground, knowing that North Carolina um, has large Black populations and Winston-Salem itself was about 30 to 40 percent African-American. Then you had the significant numbers of Mexican migrants in general coming in, um, now, I think the percentage is something like 20% in the city, about 15% statewide. Prior to the 1980s, there were pretty much no folks of Latin American origin. there, less than 1%. So it was a, sh- a rapid shift. Um, and then so you basically have this puzzle of what happens when you go from a kind of biracial place to a triracial place. And then even within that population, you have some racial variation. So I spent a whole bunch of time in Mexico talking to people, finding out more about the Afro-descendant experience there. Um, and then when I got to Winston-Salem, I realized that none of that mattered. It turned out that the way that people were thinking about race had very little to do with skin color per se and had everything to do with the political shifts that had happened. So I arrived there in 2008 And uh, people were concerned about a shift that had happened on the ground, which becomes clear later in the book, around immigration enforcement. So around 2005, 2006, alongside the sort of mass immigrant marches that were happening all all over the country, um, southern states, in particular North Carolina, became really aggressive in terms of their partnerships with the federal government. Um, to police and inform ICE of undocumented immigrants. They also passed a number of local ordinances and other kinds of exclusionary policies that policed the kinds of um, services that immigrants could access, but also the kinds of resources and jobs they could participate in, the kinds of, whether they could get a driver's license, whether they could go to college, um, but also whether or not they could have more than one family in an apartment, all of these kinds of things. And so you have this situation where um, the most of the migration had happened in the 1990s. And so people had been there for about a decade and felt like they were doing well, everything was fine, and the political climate changed. And it was that process of feeling sort of suddenly discriminated against that shaped the way that they talked about race. And so it didn't really matter whether people were dark skin or light skin or ever descendant, or mestizo they understood themselves as in a similar position to the Blacks in the community as a result of the political shift. And so the book is very much about that story. Um, So in some ways, I kind of had a natural experiment that didn't go the way that I expected it to. But it told me a much more interesting story about the importance of sort of political change and how experience matters more than skin color does, at least in an absolute sense.
0: That's such a fascinating process of rethinking the project as you're going. Um, And you talked a little bit about getting to Winston-Salem. Could you tell us about your methods as a sociologist and the nature of the community-based fieldwork that was required for the book? Sure.
1: So I consider myself a community-based ethnographer. And by that, I mean, uh, I do fieldwork that is mostly spending time in organizations and community meetings, uh, living in neighborhoods, um, participating in events, and also conducting interviews, both formally and informally with local residents. A lot of ethnographers tend to focus on a singular setting. So they might do field work in a workplace or in a school. Um, but what I was interested in was sort of broader social relations. And so that would have been a little insufficient for making sense of how the community itself was changing. So I wasn't going to be able to tell how the community was changing if I only looked at sort of one factory floor. Um, the other issues that would come up also would have been sort of issues around fear of policing, but also segregation in the city itself. So kind of maybe influenced from growing up in Chicago and spending time in lots of different places in order to get a kind of bird's eye view of the racial politics of the place. I sort of apply that lens to my analysis and fieldwork. So I spend a long time in the field. I was there for uh, about a year um, as a way to sort of touch various corners and understand sort of what's happening in local politics, what's happening in churches, what's happening in the school systems, what's happening in the neighborhoods as a way to make sense of how all of these things are tying together. Um, So that is my methodology. Uh, It's becoming, I think, a little bit more common as we are paying attention to things like gentrification and local level change to at least try to understand things either at the neighborhood level or the city level. Um, rather than sort of a singular workplace. And I think there are advantages to both styles, but for what I'm interested in, which is sort of social and political change, um, it made a lot more sense to me to think about it at the community level. In addition to that, I did a lot of archival work, both looking at archives uh, in the state, looking at policies, um, as well as looking at newspaper data from the historical African-American press. So I looked at data from the last sort of 30, 20 to 30 years, um, the mainstream press and the Spanish language press. So there was an advantage in Winston-Salem and in having Uh, newspapers that had been in circulation from all three vantage points. And so I use that as a sort of triangulation technique to see if what I was seeing on the ground was the same thing that people were telling me in interviews was the same thing that was coming up in newspapers. And how do I account for those discrepancies? Um, So it's kind of labor intensive. It takes a lot of time and energy to uh, be doing sort of archival work and field notes and attending all kinds of meetings and events um, and interviewing people. People, but I think it yields a much more sort of rich and nuanced project in the long term.
0: So you mentioned the unique advantage of the press in Winston-Salem, mm-hmm. but why Winston-Salem in general beyond that? What is it about this place that lends itself toward a study of demographic transition? Walk us through that historical and contemporary change happening there.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I chose, I selected Winston-Salem in part because it had this sort of quirk in its demographic change. So I was interested in sort of shifts more generally, and that it was true of North Carolina as a whole. So the state really changed from, um, you know, a state that was primarily black and white to a state that was black, white, and Latino in a very short period of time, and now is increasingly Um, getting significant numbers of South Asians and East Asians as well. So that was interesting in general. Winston-Salem in particular was of interest to me because I knew that Afro-Mexicans were settling there. And that has a lot to do with the history of Winston-Salem itself. So, uh, The name might sound vaguely familiar to you, if you remember anything about the heyday of the cigarette industry, Um, Winston cigarettes, (laughs) Winston-Salem was a big tobacco city, and it was sort of run for many decades as a kind of oligarchy of uh, the tobacco families that lived there. And that meant that uh, there were always sort of significant Black populations there, but also sort of post reconstruction and industrialization that also meant that tobacco processing was happening in Winston-Salem and that those jobs were actually much more well-paid than a lot of the agricultural work happening outside of the state. So Winston-Salem in some ways has always been a kind of affluent city. It's also been a kind of mecca for growth and for employment. So you've always had people coming in to Winston from other parts of the state and other parts of the region to work in tobacco, but also Haynes Hosiery started in Winston-Salem, which was also a huge um, manufacturing center there for that, um, as well as a number of other sort of major headquarters that appeared later in the seventies, eighties and nineties. So Winston-Salem has been for a midsize city, really uh, good at drawing in business and not really terribly involved in things like the civil rights movement has been kind of steady, um, controlled by sort of big business and the church and various churches of different Christian backgrounds primarily. And that meant that stability mattered more than anything else. So rather than sort of um, push back against things like civil rights reforms um the big businesses really did things like just paid people more so that they didn't engage in sort of union strikes or boycotts or protests. Um, There's lots of rumors that uh, lots of clergy were paid off as a way to sort of quell any bits of unrest, right? Which was very different than Greensboro, which is just across the way. Um, So Winston-Salem has a sort of, uh, history that is parallel to the state in terms of demographic change, and in some ways was a little bit faster because it had such a draw in terms of employment, but also has a sort of long term stability in terms of the economics of the place, but also politically, that made it an interesting experiment to see, you know, what happens in a place where people have historically felt relatively comfortable and where the tensions are not necessarily around sort of a total lack of resources, as is often the case in the South, but rather sort of much more straightforward questions about policing and discrimination and racial politics and segregation. So that's what made Winston-Salem in some ways unique, but also kind of useful for thinking about broader questions of racial politics.
0: Jennifer, there are several fascinating theoretical concepts that you develop in the book. The first one that I'd love to hear more about is this concept of reverse incorporation. Mm -hmm. What exactly is the process of reverse incorporation and how does it come about in Winston-Salem?
1: Yeah, so I would say reverse incorporation is by no means unique to Winston-Salem, but essentially what it is, is a way to try to think about how migrants get incorporated or end up settling in communities. So historically, when we've talked about uh, immigration settlement, incorporation, assimilation, we've generally thought about it as something that happens in a straight line. Um, And up until the sort of 1980s, we've largely thought about this as an upward process, right? So we get sort of European migrants um, in the 19th century, early 20th century who come and generation after generation acquire skills, uh, English speaking ability, wealth, and sort of join the mainstream, become economically mobile, become Americanized. Um, become integrated into the fabric of the country. The implicit conversation here was a little bit always about race, right? Because the comparison was African-Americans who were not ever sort of integrated into that pile. Um, And Mm -hmm. so you get this sort of split with the immigration literature and the race literature in part because of that, right? Immigration was about explaining these trajectories of new folks who came in sort of relative to the people who had been here before. By the time we get to the 80s and 90s, we start realizing that the shifts that happened in 1965 around immigration policy that allowed far larger numbers of Asian and Latin American migrants, mostly, but also African migrants and others, into the United States and sort of shifted the demographic portrait of the U.S., especially in cities across the U.S., changed the way that we had to think about it because people were sort of doing the right thing, but weren't always moving up. And so we still kept this kind of straight line way of thinking that people either were able to go up or down, um, down was often considered the result of those folks kind of getting integrated into minority communities, inner city communities, failing to take advantage of the resources available to them, and in some cases, facing discrimination in employment, in schooling, and so forth. And then there was this other path that was also straight and up, but sort of took advantage of Migrant resources, so things like ethnic enclaves, um, sort of ethnic sectors of the labor market, other ways of building kind of resources and, and mobility within your ethnic community was a way for people sort of to achieve that mobility, but still on a straight line. So What I found when I was in Winston was that people were doing the things they were supposed to be doing. They were going to school. They were getting training. They were trying to acquire property, cars, resources. They were developing skills. They were investing in their children's education. Um, All of the things that they were supposed to be doing and for the most part, up until the mid 2000s, that was yielding results. They were getting higher pay, they were getting more hours at work, they were able to purchase a car, or pay for college education, or buy a house, or send money home. And then things changed on them. So reverse incorporation is about the idea in which Uh, incorporation is not necessarily a straight line. The gains that you make can be taken away, not necessarily because of changes in your attitudes or behavior or your own activity, but the shift in the circumstance. So the context itself changed and that created a backlash that took away a lot of the gains that most of the mostly Mexican residents had made here. So people who had, Bought homes often lost their jobs and could no longer pay the mortgage. People who had purchased cars lost access to your driver's license and it no longer made sense for them to have those cars. When they lost access to their driver's license, they could no longer reliably get to work. Um, They were afraid. These kinds of policies also made people in their communities more hostile to them because they became kind of criminalized in the popular press and media. Um, Their kids were no longer able to access college, including community college, at the same rate. So this wasn't about a change in sort of attitudes towards upward mobility. It was about a change in the circumstances in which they lived. They didn't move place changed on them. And so reverse incorporation is uh, a way to try to account for those changes, which we know actually happen more often than we talk about in the literature. Whenever there's a recession or political crisis or any... Circumstance in which migrants get scapegoated for various kinds of issues, which we know happens all the time in history. um, We don't really have good language for making sense of that in terms of incorporation or mobility trajectories. So reverse incorporation is uh, a way to articulate that process. And to point out also that it is not necessarily about migrants' interest in learning English and working hard that shapes their ability to do well in the United States. It also has a lot to do with the kind of structure and context that they're
0: living in. Thank you. That that really makes me think a lot about the contemporary political situation at the national level, right? Thinking about the upcoming presidential race, um, how, how do you think the the concept of reverse incorporation sticks for contemporary political debates?
1: Yeah, it's one of those things where there was this brief moment when I was finishing the book where it looked like maybe immigration reform was happening and the Republican Party was going to be more receptive to Latino immigrants in particular. Um, and that was just a blip. And so now <laughs> we're back in this place where... Migrants are being um, openly criminalized and demonized. They're being characterized as, as a threat to culture and society. Um, and as a result of that, we've seen like a number of communities in which people have talked about not just losing access to resources, but experiencing new levels of hostility, sometimes violence from neighbors and community members. And that's really changed the way that people think about themselves. So one thing that I didn't mention was one of the results of reverse incorporation is that it's a racialization process, that that process of knowing that you're doing all of the things that you're supposed to be doing, and then suddenly feeling discriminated against, makes people see themselves as outsiders. So I think Certainly in terms of elections, it seems highly unlikely that Latinos are going to fall in line behind Trump. Um, There's not a lot of rationale for that, Um, not just because of the way that he's characterized immigrants, but that it seems to extend to minority communities in general. Um, But also that it has these sort of real on the ground circular impacts, right, that it empowers cities and municipalities to do things they might not otherwise do to exclude people and sort of bar them from access to urban mobility.
0: So you mentioned that one of the effects of reverse incorporation is racialization. So what was the racialization process for Mexican immigrants in Winston-Salem like? How did Mexican immigrants become what you call in Chapter 4, quote, new Latinos,
1: It's a great question. So the this part was really surprising to me because everything that I had ever read about uh, Latino migrants, in particular, especially in the first generation, was that they were highly likely to disidentify with African Americans, and that was part of sort of a long story of distancing from Black people as a way to sort of claim that upward mobility, that trajectory towards the mainstream and assimilation. and that they wouldn't see because they haven't had exposure to sort of the long history of discrimination in the United States or the specificities of history to make sense of why Black people, for example, might be in the position that they're in. But in the case of Winston-Salem, I was shocked to learn how readily people pointed to the kinds of experiences that the Black population had at the hands of what they understood to be the white elites. So they talked about over policing in their neighborhoods. They talked about an uneven access to resources. Um, They talked about sort of historical issues around the civil rights movement. Um, They talked about the need for political mobilization and how African-Americans were an example to them of fighting for rights. Um, They talked about how the law itself is not always fair. It's not necessarily written for everyone, um, and so in the same way that they understood uh, civil, you know, pre-civil rights laws to be exclusionary, they applied that analysis to the way that they were being treated through current immigration policy, and so they really made sense of their own experiences in the United States in that moment through that of their black neighbors. Now, I should also say that certainly black leaders in the community played a role in this. They highlighted it, and that was evident in the Spanish-language press and the Black press in particular. They made these parallels um, and talked a lot about it being a sort of broad racial frame, um, and the way that immigrants were being treated was parallel to the way that Black people were being treated, and so there was a need to see those comparisons. But it wasn't something that was difficult for them to make sense of. And so for them, being Latino was not just about having origins in Latin America. It was about experiencing this particular kind of othering and criminalization in the U.S. context, Um, despite, you know, by their own account, being good people, obeying the law, trying their very hardest to be sort of good citizens and neighbors and um, church-going folk and all of these things, right? So they understood this as race, that this is what race was about. Um, And so that was a real shift, I think, that came as a result of these political changes. I would guess, though, that would be an impossible experiment to conduct, that had we not engaged in the sort of massive anti-immigrant campaign, the kind of public discourse that criminalized immigrants and created all of these obstacles to their mobility, um, they might have continued along a sort of more conventional upper mobility path in which they saw themselves as becoming American, but literally not a single person in my study referred to themselves as American. Um, And they thought that certainly white people didn't see them as such.
0: Along the same lines, another framework that you discuss in the book is the idea of minority linked faith Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, that brings to mind the classic uh, work by Michael Dawson in political science about um, African-American linked fate. Can you tell us more about this term and how it compares with the conventional literature and sociology and Latino studies?
1: Sure. So, you know, I was very much inspired by Michael Dawson here. The way that I think about race um, is that there are a number of different components to the race making process, right? So there's a process of seeing you're identifying with a category, right? So there's some label that you are told you belong to such a group and that you identify with it. There's a sort of sense of shared experiences with people in that group that you also identify as part of that group. And then there's also a sense of kind of closeness to them, right? So if you feel like you have things in common, um, and then there's this idea of linked fate that what happens to them also affects what happens to you. And so what Michael Dawson demonstrated is what sets African Americans apart from other groups is that they understand themselves as having linked fate. That regardless of the various Different experiences they have across the United States, the different amounts of wealth, where they live, the North versus the South. There's this broad understanding of history and society in which they kind of occupy a similar position. And so what happens to black people in one place is indicative of what might happen to them. And this is true in terms of successes and failures, right? There's an idea that, you know, Obama being elected as, as president was a victory for all Black people. That was something that was widely embraced and understood in a way that is considered to not apply very well to other groups. So we've had a hard time seeing similar levels of linked fate, though we we do see things like closeness and shared identity among Latinos and Asian Americans in particular. And so um, I kind of expand this concept to think about minority length fate as a sort of broader frame that doesn't suggest that people see themselves necessarily as of the same race, racial group, but rather that they understand categories and status in a particular way. And that is that as minorities they believe we sort of share a similar status, a certain position in society. And for that reason, things that happen to other folks who are non-white minorities are likely matter for what happens to us. And so what I found in Winston-Salem is that people talked about that. Latino migrants um, and second generation folks talked about the fact that, you know, it mattered what happened to the Black kids in their schools and their neighborhoods and the kinds of Fights around things like voting rights and policing were important for them and that Obama's victory, right, this was 2008, 2009, was important for them because he understood what it meant to be a minority in society and that he would be more sympathetic to their flights, and vice versa. So it is this way of thinking about kind of the political and social interests. It's the thing that we think matters the most about race, but we don't really always have good tools for understanding how people get there. So how do people get from a place of saying I'm Latino to a place where they vote as a block? I think linked fate helps us make sense of those continuities. And so minority linked fate is a way of trying to make sense of how people get to that, but as a sort of broader minority block. Um, And so I was seeing a lot of that there. I don't think it's a given, but I think when you have these sort of shared experiences of discrimination, of over-policing, of criminalization in the media, then it's very difficult to not see those parallels. And so that was what was being articulated there.
0: So talking about minority voting blocks, how about we move on to one of my absolute favorite topics. Let's talk about politics Mm-hmm. Once again, mm-hmm. in ch- in chapter six, you describe the formation of distinctive political alliances between the Latino immigrant community and African Americans. Tell us about the political dynamics that you discovered within these interracial coalitions, as well as the white political backlash and retrenchment that, in many ways, spurred those coalitions.
1: Yeah. So. The history of Winston-Salem has been one of sort of uneasy silence around race and lots and lots of segregation. And for the Black community historically, that has meant um, kind of hoarding power where they could get it, which was not often, right? Because they didn't have the same kind of money, nor did they have the numbers, And so when Latino immigrants started settling in the city in significant numbers, this kind of perked up the ears of some of the black leaders in the community because it seemed like it could be an opportunity to build a coalition in which they could have a majority. So there was an instrumental piece to it. Um, But then when the political backlash started, that became something else. Then it became something around Civil rights issues, right? When you're denying people access to healthcare, to education, um, when you're policing their neighborhoods, when you're uh, using violence to control, that became something that was obvious to many of the Black leaders in the neighborhood that was part of their own agenda. They claimed to be civil rights leaders, these were civil rights issues. And so they actually did a lot of outreach. Um, This happened both sort of within organizations, mostly interfaith organizations, and at the city level. It happened that the Human Relations Commission was run primarily by Black and Latino uh, staff leaders, um, city services, and so forth. And they coordinated a number of conversations throughout the city over the course of nearly a decade in which the purpose was to sort of build conversations and talk about the sort of shared issues facing Black and Latino communities. And and the efforts here were not about, you know, trying to come up with ways of being tolerant. It was about talking about like real bread and butter issues, right? What's happening in our schools? Why are the police using tasers? Um, what can we do about ensuring, you know, access to voting, all of these kinds of bread and butter issues. In part, this had everything to do with sort of the rise of the anti-immigrant establishment in the Republican Party, which is certainly present in the area. Um, but also this kind of like backlash against all minority issues in the state. Uh, North Carolina has been very contentious for quite some time uh, between the parties. And so this really made it very obvious, right, because they had this kind of common enemy that was trying to take away resources um, and access to equality. And so black leaders kind of capitalized that and saw that as a moment in which they could build relations. And the Latino community, which tended to have fewer long term leaders, we're really grateful to have a group of people who saw the experiences they were having on the ground, that asked how they could support them, that invited them into coalitions, um, and that were trying to build a community around this kind of partnership. Um, there were lots of organizations that were predominantly white who tried also to build relations with white I mean, with Latino groups, but those didn't work as well because they tended to focus on sort of broad principles of tolerance, um, very long histories of sort of biblical um, truths of welcoming the stranger, right? But very little in terms of pushing back against the sort of real time policies or even kind of building real social relations. So it turns out, something that I kind of failed to mention, but maybe is implied, that Latinos were living mostly in Black communities. So the segregation in the city was largely between whites and non-whites. And so that also meant an additional barrier for white progressives to build relations with Latinos because they weren't their neighbors. They didn't share institutions. They didn't see any many Latinos that I spoke to never knew any white people at all. Um, Many of the white progressives that I talked to said that they really didn't know, any Latinos. They didn't know how to build relationships. They didn't speak Spanish. And so they were hesitant. So there were all of these kinds of social barriers at the same time that there was just a kind of fundamental misunderstanding of how race was working in that community by white progressives in order to build those relationships. So it made it sort of rather straightforward and simple though that's sort of counter to what we read in the literature, for the Black and Latino communities to sort of come together and perhaps in the long run build a majority that would push for things like representation on school boards, better resource access, um, more humane immigration policies, and so on and so forth.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, you just made me think of the cover of the book, which to me looks like a a very simple map or a grid with lots of different colored dots. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you touched on it a little bit right now, but okay. So Latinos are moving in uh, to, as you say, mainly black neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Um, How does that, how did that impact the politics of segregation? And more generally, what were the geographic or spatial dimensions of Winston-Salem's demographic change?
1: Yeah. So, So the cover of the book, which took a lot, was a lot of struggle, but my my editor came up with this design, which is essentially a version of some of the maps that are in the book of demographic change. Um, And so you can sort of see the dots here are on the front are white, black, and orange representing sort of concentration of black, white, and orange populations. And it feels a little scattered, but you can see kind of in the um, the north, like to the left, those quadrants can be almost entirely white and through sort of the center around the highways, those tend to be sort of black and Latino dots. Um, and so the highways kind of were part of an urban renewal program, like so many cities that bisected um, historically black neighborhoods and sort of clustered black people around those areas. But essentially they were kind of on the south side of the city. and. Because Winston-Salem has always been so prosperous, um, Black people also benefited to that, from that to some degree. There's a historically Black college in the city. People were upwardly mobile, moving into higher paid positions. And so as a result of that, they were able to kind of over time buy nicer homes, either on the outskirts of the neighborhood or sort of slightly into the suburbs or bordering white neighborhoods. And that left all of these apartment buildings empty. That's where Latinos moved in. So, in many ways, it didn't really upend segregation in the sense that the white neighborhoods stayed white, but the black neighborhoods embraced Latinos moving in because there were sort of empty apartment buildings that were abandoned. Um, and so, there were families moving in. They opened small businesses in the small strip malls around the area. And so, lots of people referred to this as a kind of revitalizing process that they didn't like to see their old neighborhoods becoming sort of abandoned and left behind. And so it was good to see families there, but that also meant that they were much more likely to see Latino families like at the grocery store and their kids were likely to go to the same public schools. Um, They were going to run into each other at the bus stop. So Segregation meant that Blacks and Latinos were sort of forced to get to know each other in a community setting, whereas white people sort of remained on the outskirts. And that was sort of geographically reinforced by the way that the highways kind of split the city into quadrants. Um, And that hasn't changed much as far as I know. Um, there are a few places where Latino residents were living in kind of trailer parks, but even in those that used to be uh, sort of mostly white. But the people that I spoke to who lived in those areas told me that uh, as Latino families moved in, white families moved out. So it created this sort of micro white flight out of those areas as well. And those sort of pockets became entirely Latino. So segregation sort of persisted, um, but also played a sort of important role in reinforcing these ideas about race and racial politics in the city.
0: Yeah. That makes me think of uh, Andrew Sandoval Strauss's article in the Journal of American History that talks about, uh, you know, post-war Chicago and how Latinos moving into the city played a similar similar role in uh countering uh urban decay or or um abandoned communities so it's a very interesting much more contemporary parallel
1: yes and there were always the it was almost always black and latino communities where urban renewal would happen highways would be built the university that i'm at now was built in a majority Black and Latino community. And so people get displaced and sort of have to reform communities in other spaces um, and are not often welcome in white neighborhoods. And so they kind of, the segregation moves, but it maintains over time.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely fascinating. Well, now that we're nearing the end of our time with you, Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to move from the present and the past and toward the future. So what is next on your research agenda?
1: So this project for me um, ended up being a lot more prescient, I think, for thinking about contemporary politics than I thought, in particular in paying attention to what's happening at the local and state level. So today, while there's tons and tons of conversation about what's happening at the border um, and Trump's policies, around immigration and uh, Muslim bans and other kinds of things that we should rightly be discussing. What's really happening around immigration enforcement or reception is really happening in cities and states. And so my current project is trying to understand the variation in that in the South, um, as well as the role that sort of local organizations Um, and local politics play in shaping those outcomes. So I'm doing a collaborative project with Hannah Brown at Wake Forest, in which we're looking at four southern states, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and North Carolina, to try to understand how those states over the past decade or so have pursued uh, kind of a wide variation in terms of policies towards immigrants, And the roles that local organizations, especially those that are sort of multiracial in scope and are partnered with organizations like the NAACP, what role that has played in shaping the political outcomes there. So in short, um, Alabama has HB 56, which is considered one of the most draconian state-level laws um, that is punitive towards immigrants. It bans them from all kinds of institutions. It empowers um all kinds of local agencies to act as ICE agents and so on lots of the law actually was rendered in, unconstitutional but it is a very hostile atmosphere Mississippi hasn't passed any policies like this. Mississippi has been largely receptive towards immigrants. Jackson, though the state later overturned the ability to create sanctuary cities, Jackson was declared a sanctuary city. And so Alabama and Mississippi and everybody's collective imagination are basically the same state, especially when it comes to race issues. So we were really curious, how is it that you get uh, Mississippi kind of framework and a um issue ways in which they've approached immigration in Alabama. when everything about them looks similar, they have Republican legislators, they are largely conservative states. They've had similar rates of migration, the income level is the same. And the answer really seems to be that there is a lot happening at the local level in terms of these kind of multiracial coalitions that I point to at the end of the book. Um, that there is a group called the Mississippi Immigrant Rights Coalition um, um, organization, and they work, MIRA, they work really closely with um, the Black Caucus, the NAACP, and several unions in the state to try to prevent anti-immigrant laws from being passed in the state legislature. They also have a regular column in the Black newspaper. They provide legal services. They do a lot of lobbying work. And so they've been really effective at making Mississippi a much more open state than we would expect. Uh, Georgia and North Carolina are also two interesting contrasting cases Georgia has also been historically extremely punitive, passed a number of laws, including a major omnibus legislation to um, ban immigrants from all kinds of institutions. They're banned from all of their uh, competitive colleges and universities. Um, And they have done this consistently, though Atlanta has become this sort of bright spot, which I talk about in the book and which coalitions have formed to try to push back against this. North Carolina has sort of been the opposite, although very much up and down in terms of state level policy. But you see these pockets in cities um, now Winston-Salem, but also places like Charlotte. So this project is really about trying to make sense of how race gets operationalized on the ground to change policy or to shape policy and how policy is actually shaping how people think about race in these states with the idea of using this sort of variation in immigration regimes to understand these processes. So that's what I'm working on now. It's a big project. (laughs) I'm going (laughs) to Georgia next week to do some uh, archival data collection, but it's been really fascinating to sort of, Um, dig deeper into how these processes unfold and see the connections between sort of what happened in Alabama and how all of the people involved in Alabama's HB 56 law became advisors in the Trump administration. So there are also these like very strong ties between what happens at the local level and what happens um, at the federal level that I think we need to be paying a lot more attention to. It's also important because we no longer live in a country. It's now a federalist system. So it used to be the case that immigration policy was controlled by the federal government, and that was it. There was very little done at the state and local level that had anything to do with immigration law. Now that's just not true. Depending on where you live, you experience a completely different set of rules around immigration. If you live in California and you are an undocumented youth, you can get in state tuition, you can get a driver's license, you can get a work permit and get a job. You don't you're in a sanctuary state, so you are relatively protected from deportation. If you are someone with the same criteria and experiences and you live in Alabama, or Georgia, you don't have access to college, you don't have access to a driver's license, you are at risk of deportation. In fact, any person you encounter, if you go to the hospital, they may be in a position where they can can report you to ICE. So it becomes a, a complete patchwork of policies. And so I think in order to understand immigration and race today, we have to look at what's happening at the state and local level.
0: Absolutely. That sounds like such an exciting, important project. And I think I can't wait to see it. (laughs) Thank you. And I must say, this has been such an informative hour about a riveting project. Once again, we've been talking to Dr. Jennifer A. Jones about her new book, The Browning of the New South, out now from the University of Chicago Press. Jennifer, Thank you so much for being with us here on New Books and Latino Studies and for sharing your work with us.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Great. Take care.
1: You too.